Everyone has a story. I get them to tell it. Welcome to the Aaron Bender Podcast, conversations with media personalities about their personal and professional lives and journeys. Really appreciate your support, whether you're watching on YouTube or nightly at 11 p.m. Pacific or 2 a.m. Eastern on DB&A TV at dbandatelevision.tv or streaming with the DB&A TV app on Amazon Fire, Roku, and Apple TV or listening on your favorite platform. Before we get to my conversation with Chef Andrew Gruel, a little about my story. I'm a widowed dad of two girls who just lost their mom, a grieving husband, a man in recovery trying to reconnect with the world with fresh eyes, faith, and perspective, a college journalism professor, a white guy in a world of injustice, a 20-year broadcast media veteran who had his dream job and then lost it. A year and a half ago, God gave me a gift, an opportunity to stop, step back, and breathe so I can learn about love, vulnerability, forgiveness, grace, self-care, patience, and understanding. Chef Andrew Gruel is a Southern California culinary icon with seafood restaurant Slapfish, Chicken Joint Two Birds, and pineapple-free pizza place Big Parm under his umbrella. He's had the Food Network spotlight on him for a while, but he was thrust onto a different stage during the pandemic going after Governor Newsom. Chef and I discuss his spontaneous partnership with Barstool's Dave Portnoy, his country crisscrossing career that started in New Jersey, how social media helped launch his business and his family, living with anxiety, and the major changes he's seen in society and the kitchen. I'm at the rest- Huntington Beach restaurant. Let me uh, get this cleaned up there. Oh, there we go. <laughs> is, that, uh, is that headquarters? Uh, it's where I work hands-on all the time um the kitchen here this was this was just like a little old uh broom closet that this is my office you know people think i'm sitting in an ivory tower <laughs> where, where did you get the humility i mean i understand if, you know, we could watch all the cooking shows we want and there are some chefs who do sit in that ivory tower uh where did you get the humility and how have you kept it I just, you know, working parents, that's what I would say. Um, two working parents, uh, you know, I was a latchkey child growing up. I, I say that sarcastically. Um, I enjoyed it. But the, uh, you know, watching my parents work and then it was the same thing. When I got into the industry, I realized that working alongside my team members and showing them as opposed to telling them was always the best practice. Right. And it just never went away. What was the first cooking show you remember watching? Uh, Yan Kang Cook. It was either that or Jacques Pepin. Uh, but I'm pretty sure it was Yang Kang Cook. I, I vividly remember sitting at home sick from school or pretending to be sick from school and just watching the the, the, the daytime. It was either that or Days of Our Lives. So I moved <laughs> over to the, uh, and don't get me wrong, I was pretty good on Days of Our Lives until Marlena was possessed by the devil. Uh, which, which time? Which time? Yeah, good. The first time that was it for me. Uh, uh, <laughs> it, it was but, it was uh, days of our lives, and I think it was another world right after that at one o'clock. And then I want to say Santa Barbara was on at two o'clock. I just I remember days home from school with Grandpa. That that, that was his run from twelve yeah. to three. It was those three in a row. Where was General Hospital in there? Oh no, that was on ABC. That was on oh, ABC. Okay. My my grandpa was a was an NBC uh, soap opera guy, so I I was I was stuck with the you know the Marlenas, you know. Yeah, got it, got it. <laughs> so I need to hear a, a Jacques Pepin uh, uh, impression because growing up, you you had to have at some point worked on it, 
either that or a Julia Child. So it just you you pick. Oh my gosh, how about those? Uh, just Julia Child is the best. I uh, I'm not good at impressions, <laughs> um, but you know, Jacques Jacques Pepin. I I uh, I wouldn't even attempt to uh, uh, blasphemize his <laughs> accent. What? Uh... I mean, we, we could all grow up watching. I mean, I, I grew up watching cartoons. I didn't become an animator. I, did, I grew up watching, you know, uh, baseball. And, of course, you know, I'm not, I'm not playing baseball. At what point did you feel like, oh, I could, I could do this? Not can, but want to. Yeah, it was, it's, it's the translating from the watching to the doing. That's a good, that's a good point. So, so we didn't have, I, you know, once again, two working parents, microwave generation. The only chef I knew was like Sarah Lee, right? Um, you know, I even still remember to this day, like Christmas morning, you know, when like everybody's like, Oh, we're going to cook the pancakes and we're going to do this. I just remember my sister and I smelling the, uh, the, the, the frosting in the microwave going and we're like, Oh yeah, yeah. Time to get up. You know, um, everything was microwave. So there was no culinary roots, if you will. And so I remember thinking like, Oh, well I got to cook for myself. I've, you know, after watching all of this and being inspired, it seems so easy. So just going through the cupboards and actually trying to put things together. And then it was just trial by error. Right. But really it was getting into the restaurant industry um, uh, and actually working in the environment where you get the bite. We stay with that childhood uh, is just the one sister. One sister. Yep. Okay. So uh, how did, how did she kind of, um, I would imagine she became kind of a guinea pig for what uh, what what little Andrew was making in the kitchen. How oh, did she? She wants nothing. <laughs> nothing to do with me. <laughs> nah. So so uh, what what's one of the things that you f- remember making first? Like I remember making nut bars, right? It was one of those non-baked nut bars where you put in all these different things like dry goods and spices and peanut butters, and then you press them into a mold and put it in a refrigerator. It was one of the most disgusting things I've ever eaten in my life. I still, I like, I still need a glass of milk to get it out, but um, I can actually, and, and, and I say this, I'm not even being sarcastic. I can vividly remember the flavors right now and thinking about what I did wrong. <laughs> Uh, any thought to put something like that on a slapfish menu, maybe for dessert, just like a special night, like, uh, Hey, we're going back to childhood. Like I'm going to do it right this time. We're going back to the nut bars. I might be canceled for that. (laughs) Oh, we're going to get, we're going to get into the culture of everything. Cancel culture and everything. I, I love, and we're going to fast forward here because you, 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 uh, you brought up kind of modern day. Okay. I was off social media for all of 2020 pretty much. And then all of a sudden I go onto your Instagram and here you are uh, next to Dave Portnoy from Barstool Sports. And I'm like, um, is this is this the same chef I remember from uh, you know, like a year, year and a half ago? What is, how did that all come about? And, and how have you handled this kind of being thrust into the spotlight? You know, a lot of it your own doing, but thrust into the spotlight yeah look it's been i've always tried to walk a fine line and never really um engage in anything that could be seen as controversial the most controversial conversation that i probably engaged in pre-pandemic was pineapple on pizza yes or no um and and albeit that's quite controversial now where where do you stand on that let's let's clear it up well, I own a pizza joint now in Tustin called Big Parm. And if you look at the social site, it says Big Parm, no pineapple allowed. Okay, so. well, that's where you stand. Now, as as a vegan, I enjoy a um, 
a, a vegan's Hawaiian with pineapple and mushroom. You okay, okay. with that? Pineapple and mushroom. Wow, that is oh, one it's, heck of a combo. It's really good. It's really good because you know because mushroom is is our meat substitute. Yeah. More yeah. often than not. And oh yeah, it's uh it's pineapple, mushroom, and I'll throw some olives and some some peppers in there as well. Sometimes well, we just I'll send you the link. We just posted up our vegan pie, the making of, um, and uh, it's 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 darn good. They've come far with vegan cheeses nowadays. Yes. To actually, they can actually melt. Yes. Uh, versus just the chalky nut, the nut cheeses, right? Going back to the nut bars. Yeah, yeah, uh, the 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 nut cheeses. I mean, I think. If if you go back 10, 15 years ago, I, I did, I was vegetarian for, for some time, like, oh, nine to 13 or no, oh, seven to 11. I don't know what it was, but, yeah. but cheese was one of the things I missed the most because there just wasn't a, a decent alternative. And, and yeah. now they're all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. And I just realized nut cheese isn't a great way to brand it, but. That's actually the, the name of this podcast. It's okay. Chef Andrew Gruel nut cheese <laughs> so let's go back to how you ended up uh, uh hanging out with the uh, stool presidente well so you know we the, our connection is is that we started a fund um around the same time so ours was focused on helping struggling and out-of-work restaurant workers his is more on the business side of things and as we um you know originally him and i connected through a mutual friend or actually i think it was through i was on tucker and and the producer reached out and said, you guys need to connect because he always goes on Tucker, et cetera. And I said, uh, is there a way we should work together? Can we work together? Kind of this wholesale approach. But then, you know, things just kind of parlayed and we each did our own thing, um, helped promote each other along the way. But then recently, Bill Malusian from Fox 11, well, formerly Fox 11, I think he's with yeah, Fox. Yeah, he just started now. with Fox News in the last few weeks. He had reached, he had covered this gentleman's story up in Montrose from the wine cave, who once again, um, similar situation to so many restaurateurs and independent business owners shut down due to the regulations, but his liquor license didn't allow him to serve a certain type of food. And a lot of these regulations without the food being served, you couldn't open with COVID, you know how complicated it can get. But long story short, a year later, the guy ends up having to close his business. Bill posts about it. I reached out to Bill and said, put me in touch with this guy. Let's see if we can raise some money for him we pivoted it more into the business side of it, which, which we hadn't been doing. We, so I put a call to action out on social and immediately, I mean, it was great. We, we, we generated like $15,000 in donations in about an hour. And then I get a message from uh, Dave and he's like, Hey, he's like, I'll cover the gap if you need me to. I said, yeah, that, I mean, why would I, why would I not <laughs> say like, yes to no, that? No, Dave, we're okay. I appreciate yeah, Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so he goes, all right, I'll call you in 15 minutes. And then, you know, next thing you know, we're on a three-way call with the guy from um, the wine cave, and um, you know, hundred guys got a hundred thousand dollars like that. That was uh, that was the the post I saw. I think yeah, was, was that exactly. that three-way call. I was like, wow. I mean, the, and and it's it's one of those where yes, it's the power of social media, but you you also when you're I would imagine in the middle of it, in the middle of this kind of tornado of activity, did it hit you like oh oh shit this is actually happening and everybody's watching it happen. And I'm probably not going to be able to pinch myself for like a half hour. Yeah. Well, you know, all this kind of kicked off in the end of November when I went on my kind of viral rant, um, when Newsom shut down outdoor dining 
Um, and it was totally unplanned. Like we were in the kitchen. I was, I, I had just gotten news about it. I kind of knew it was coming and I just went off on it and, you know, gave my wife the phone and was like, just videotape this. And I posted it not thinking much of it. And of course I ended it with, so the, the, the purpose behind the rant was everyone, I kept talking about how we should be open outdoors because it's safer that way. I knew the unintended consequence of shutting down outdoor dining would be to drive people into backyard parties, which is where we knew the spikes were coming from, right? You kind of have this sense of accountability in public spaces. People wear masks, they distance themselves. You don't do that in your own backyard, especially neighborhood parties, et cetera. Right. I said, watch what's gonna happen. Um, and everybody kept responding to me, oh, you're an asshole, you know, business owner trying to kill grandma, et cetera, et cetera. So my rant ended with, I'm not the asshole, Newsom's the asshole, right? Well, oh my gosh, within 10 <laughs> minutes, bing, 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 my phone is going nuts. I've got every single news outlet reaching out to me. Oh, can you cover this? Within one hour, New York Post, you know, California chef calls Newsom an asshole. And I'm like, this is, so now, it was anxiety though, right? Because I'm I, I'm like, this is it, I'm gonna get canceled now, right? Like this is, yeah. this is it. Yeah. Um, now I started to get support from both sides of the aisle because they were like, yeah, the, the banning of outdoor dining is pretty stupid. But what's really funny about the way these issues work is, is that in the beginning, even if there's bipartisan support, people kind of tribalize and they realize, oh, I got to get back in my corner. And then they're like, well, I don't like this guy. Like, even though I agreed with it in the beginning, I, I don't agree with it now. Um, so, uh, so for like two to three weeks, it was, it was like laying awake wondering whether there was going to, you know, uh, whether who knows what was going to happen. I'm sure you got some death threats because anybody with any kind of celebrity anymore, uh, if they take on status quo or establishment, they're going to get something like that. Yep. I, oh, I did. I did. We, we did. Um, pretty, pretty nasty stuff, to be honest. Uh, you know, it, it's just unbelievable how, how quickly we've almost, or maybe it was always there and I just wasn't aware of it or I wasn't a target of it, but just the ways in which people go from like, Hey, I like pineapple on pizza. I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, Lauren, obviously you're, you're, you mentioned, uh, you're giving your wife your phone. She's your partner. She's supporting you and everything. At some point does she say, uh, um, you know, let's, let's just, let's just cook some food. Yeah. Let's oh, just yeah. cook some food 100%. and run a few restaurants. A hundred percent. One hundred percent. Get off your phone. Look, you know, like, eh, yeah. Yeah. And it goes back and forth too, because like she's got opinions on certain topics and, and be, by, by virtue of the fact that we're both in the business and like with everything having shut down this year, it's been, we've really been hands-on, been involved. We didn't, she was pregnant. So we didn't put the kids in school, not knowing what was going to happen. Right. Because remember in the beginning, it was like, we don't know how it affects pregnant women, et cetera. We found out the first day of lockdown, she was pregnant. So we said, okay, we'll homeschool the kids, um, for whatever that means. Right. Um, <laughs> But that basically meant taking the kids to the restaurant every day. Um, yeah. So we would have been posting about that. She built a little bit of fanfare with it too. And then she starts to get vocal on certain controversial topics. And then what I do, it's the flip side. I'm like, hey, give me your phone. Like, no more death threats. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, it just, one of us can be a target. Let's not, let's not have both of us be the target. Yeah. yeah What's yeah, it like definitely. now with four kids? Oh, my gosh. Uh, it's completely outnumbered. You know. <laughs> And, and it's amazing the way the relationship, right, between all the kids and especially um, with the age differences from six months all the way up to 10 year old, 10 years old. Uh, but, you know, I mean, your father, it's it's the greatest thing in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And and now you, you say outnumbered at four. 
Uh, you didn't feel that way at three. I mean, that that it's not as if all of a sudden four. Oh, we're outnumbered. No, you you've been outnumbered for a little bit here. Yeah, you're right. You're right. I think that I've blocked a lot of that. <laughs> How'd you guys meet, you and Lauren? Uh, Instagram. Oh wow, wow. Yeah. All right, tell tell me tell me. Um, it was uh, it was it was just a friend of a friend commenting on photos. It happened in a comment thread, and then the next thing you know, we were on a date. That's my wife and I, same thing. Oh, nine. I want to say June or so I'm, I'm, I'm commenting on a mutual friend's Facebook as you know, she's my, my wife is just, she's blurry in all these photos and all you could see is the smile, you know, that she's just always moving. And, and I actually, I think I, I commented on one of the photos. Is there a photo in which you are not moving or something like that? And it turns out we had both been skydiving recently and all kinds of things. And she slid into my DMs and she's like, uh, message me, you intrigue me. And that was July of 09. We were married in December. That's, oh, well, that's, unbelievable. yeah, yeah. Unbelievable. What was the, what was that first date? Um, it was short and sweet and it was like a lunch date and a beer. And then I shook her hand afterwards and she was like, this is, this is over. Like he shook my hand. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> I told my wife during the, during our first date, I was like, I'm not really looking for a relationship. <laughs> yeah. It's like, yeah, you don't, you don't know, you don't know. So, yeah. and, and I was like, I don't want to overstep any boundaries and like, clearly she's out of my league. It's one of those things, you know? So yeah. Yeah. You didn't cook for her. No, no. Oh, no, 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 no. And she was culinary school. So, so what that's what also made it pretty interesting was because the mutual connection whose post we were commenting on was, was her, was somebody who interviewed me for a culinary school project was a student at culinary school. So that was the general connection. So let's go back again, the idea that you're, you're watching all these cooking shows, you're getting into it as a kid. At what point did you decide, okay, this is going to be my career, or at least I'm going to pursue it as such. Well, I, I, I got a job with a friend's mother's catering company. So that was my first bite into the industry. It loved the hustle, the bustle, the competitive nature of it, the fast pace, get it done, get it done, right? Just always being on the edge of anxiety. I've, call it, I've been hardwired to be anxious my whole life. So um, that I, in, in, I'll funny stop enough, you there. Why do you, well, yeah, why do you say that? And then go on funny enough. I don't know. It's just the way I am. I'm just, just always anxious. My mother's an anxious person. I'm an anxious person. Perhaps it's genetic. I don't know. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, what's really fascinating about the restaurant industry is that you always have a reason to be anxious, right? So it almost kind of justifies the anxiety, which is why I always say people in the restaurant industry, when they take time off, they get more anxious because then the underlying anxiety comes out and they're like, oh shit, I shouldn't be anxious right now. And that's making me more anxious. So we work so much because we're like, Oh, I'm, I'm anxious because I got all this stuff to do. <laughs> so the catering was your first job. Um, you know, we, we hear all of these different stories, you know, line cook, prep, expo, you know, all these different things. What was your first like, okay, restaurant, full on restaurant job? Well, after that, I went in, I worked at a beautiful, large hotel and I lived in, I grew up in Jersey yeah. and it was the only five star, five diamond hotel. So it was this massive operation, chefs and you know, sushi chefs and, and dishwashers. I was washing dishes. I was waiting tables at the pool deck. And then one day the cook called out. So they were like, we're going to teach you how to roll spring rolls and do all this. And then I, from that point on, I fell in love with the kitchen. I knew I already loved it, but I was kind of afraid of it. And, um, and then I went to college. That was the summer before I went to college. I was, went to a small liberal arts college up in Maine. 
and I was studying philosophy and piano performance. Uh, and was that with the idea that, okay, I'm going to get a, I, I am going to get a real job. This, this restaurant thing is, is, is not necessarily career. I'm going to get a quote, real degree or a real job. And maybe this restaurant thing just isn't, isn't going to yeah, come. I never thought the restaurant industry thing would, would become anything or be anything other than just a side job. I loved it. To but pay I didn't for college or whatever. Right. I didn't understand the notion of it being a career. So I go up to Maine and okay, I got to get a job. Well, what do I know? Restaurant. So I go find out there's a lobster restaurant there. I start working in a lobster restaurant and then they're like, oh, you want to come out on the boats and do lobstering with us? So it just becomes this job. You know, I work at a Denny's up there. I work at an Applebee's. It was like, I end up spending more time working than obviously going to school. And after about two years of doing that, I didn't, still didn't think I wanted to be in the restaurant industry. I just knew I wanted to travel, right? Okay. And get out. So I left college and I got a job for the Grand Teton Lodge Company way out in Wyoming, right by Yellowstone. It's a national park. And they give you this list of jobs you can take on. And I was like, well, what's the one in which it's going to be the easiest for me? And I'm not going to have to really, I can go hiking. I can go do all this stuff. I was kind of really interested in writing and environmental literature. Um, and uh, I saw, so I, I click, I checked security guard, right? I get there. I know, <laughs> I know. Security guard. Well, it was like a guy who walks around. It was like the overnight shift. Yeah, like, it doesn't yeah. do anything. So I get there and uh, I go to like, you know, sign up, get your job papers, all this. And they're like, yeah, sorry, no security jobs available, but we saw on your resume, you have all this cooking experience. So you're going to go be a prep cook at the chuck wagon, which is this like offsite, right. You know, um, howdy duty restaurant. And I'm like, ah, all right, whatever, fine. So, uh, that was it. And then I, I started working there in restaurants and then I had this chef take me under his wing, who was like a well-known French chef. And from there it just took off. Do you have any horror stories from the kitchen? Like most chefs, when we see them on Food Network, we've seen you on Food Network. And when we see these chefs talking about their horror stories, what's the one that you pull out? The first one that for me was was scary, actually, was I remember I was training in a kitchen and uh, this was out west as well. And there were these two guys that were working together. And one of them was from they were both these Mexican guys. One was from Oaxaca and one was from Zacatecas, right? Two different regions. They didn't get along. I don't know whether it was because of the, the, where they were in Mexico, where they were from in Mexico, but they didn't get along. One was a grill cook. One was a pantry cook. Now, if you work in restaurants, you know that the pantry cook puts out the salads and all that first, and then he doesn't have to work again or put out dishes until desserts come in. Grill cook is then churning, right? So when the pantry guy was busy with orders, the grill cook, who was the guy from Oaxaca, was giving him lip, right? Oh man, pick it up. You're slow. Oh, that dish looks like crap. That dish looks like crap. So then when it was the grill guy's turn, it was the opposite. The pantry guy would be giving him crap. Well, at one point, in, and I'm in the middle training as the fry guy in the middle of all this, right? Yeah. Just this young kid. And the pantry guy comes in and he's giving the guy, the grill guy crap. And he puts his hand on his cutting board to mess with him, like to lean over and just be like, he's sitting there. Well, the grill guy's weeded. He takes his knife, sticks it right through the guy's hand, right into mm. the cutting board. And I'm in the middle of all this. There's blood, a knife through his hand, right in the cutting board. I'm just sitting there and I'm still dropping chicken parm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you've got orders to fill. I didn't know what the hell to do. I'm like, I'm just going to keep dropping chicken parm and try not to get stabbed here. So oh, um, that was uh, that was my first experience in the kitchen. And the most amazing thing about it was it wasn't like anyone called the police. It wasn't this big deal. They like cleaned up the cutting boards. The guy wraps his hand. They got into this big fight. The, the, they both got fired. And then it was like nothing ever happened. 
it, it, did the customers have an idea of what was happening back there? I mean, a little extra sauce on their palm. <laughs> you brought up you worked at Denny's, you worked at Applebee's. Do places like that get a bad rap? You know, the Applebee's, the Chili's, the kind of that uh, fast casual. Well, they not as much now. They deserve some of the, the bad rap because they're they're a lot of their stuff now is just so full of chemicals and it's like they're not making anything from scratch and i'm sorry i shouldn't say they they deserve it all it's a lot of them are independent franchisees owner operators but when i was working at like denny's for example we were cracking all of our own eggs i was working the midnight shift outside of a college town it was a bunch of stoners in there i'm just making moons over my hammy left and right um same with the applebee's like right i remember they had some great steaks there um you know the, everything was i don't know how it is now but at the time no i mean i think it was at the it was at the birth of that large multi-unit take, you know, restaurant takeover. Um, the, uh, well, I'm going to edit this part out because I completely forgot what I was going to say because I'm just uh, uh, mesmerized by your beard. Um, uh, when's the last? <laughs> when's the last time? I'll just throw it out there. When's the last time you didn't have a beard? Uh, when my when my, what? Let's see, William. Um, so since my third son was born or since William was about two or three because I had the beard. And then I saw this video that went viral where a father like shaved his beard and then his baby didn't recognize him anymore. And the baby was crying. I don't know if you've seen that yes, one. Where I have. Like, yes. So, so it just, and I remember my dad shaved his, he had a mustache all while we grew up. And then when I was like 11, he shaved his mustache. And I was like, I was just like disturbed for a week. <laughs> You know, this is not my father. I don't know who this man is. I felt very uncomfortable about it. So yeah. I realized, like, I don't want to subject my kids to that. So while I will eventually shave the beard, I'm going to do it in, like, layers, right? Like, a little bit less and a little bit less and a little bit less. So it's not to be so traumatic because you can still remember, you know, 30 years later. I still remember smelling the aftershave after he shaved his mustache <laughs> and stole my father out from underneath me. Uh, let's. Uh, I want to uh, find out why the move from the East Coast to California. You talked about traveling, and you were in, uh, you know, Yellowstone, and you're off the coast of Maine, lobstering. But why the eventual move to California? Because you really haven't left since, right? Well, yeah. So I went. I went from. Wyoming. And then I went and I did my apprenticeship out in Oregon on Mount Hood. And then I went back to Denver to finish my degree and go to culinary school there. I got my degree there at culinary school in Denver, then went back to Boston, then New Hampshire, then Boston oh, again, man. Um, and then back to Jersey, right? Literally to the town I grew up in to work at a Marriott that just opened there. Um, and then ultimately on the Jersey shore. Now bring us to 2008 when the economy took a dump. And um, I like restaurants shut down that I was in. It was one of those, you know, it was it was there was a, an economic feeling similar to what we had during the pandemic. Obviously, it wasn't a crisis from from a health perspective. And it was just one of those situations where I said, OK, time to follow through on passion project of mine. Now, interestingly, along the way, I got a business degree in food marketing, got my culinary degree, et cetera. And I fell in love with seafood, always loved seafood. That was always just a, a passion project of mine, sustainability, the oceans. If I could have been a scientist, I would have been a marine biologist. And totally randomly, I see this job post for the Aquarium of the Pacific is seeking a program manager to direct and develop a sustainable seafood program. And their qualifications are you must be a chef with a chef background. You must have a marketing background and a love of seafood. And I'm like, was this written for me? 
<laughs> somebody, um, somebody called ahead and said, okay, here's, I've got this guy, but he's not going to respond unless he sees it randomly. Let's go. I know. Exactly. Exactly. So I, so I applied for the position, flew out to California. It was at the Long Beach Aquarium. And, um, you know, they were like three-year program. We got a grant from the Pacific Life Foundation. You'll basically have full autonomy, run this thing. Oh, by the way, you're not going to really make any money. Right. Um, uh, but follow through, right. A single guy. It was like great opportunity to come out to SoCal three years and I'll be back home. Um, Had you been to Southern California prior to that? Uh, I mean, for any length of time? Once. Once I came out. Uh, yeah, I came out, visited some friends, loved it. Absolutely loved it. Um, so of course the memories were, you know, when you come someplace on a vacation and then somebody offers you a job there, you think your life is going to be the vacation. It's the vacation the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> when did yeah. that, so that dream crumble? Like when, uh, when, when I had to find a place to live <laughs> <laughs> and you realize I'm making no money, at least yeah. Long Beach, Long Beach was, it was, and still is decent. If you yeah. just want just a little hole in the wall, you can still find it for yes, a decent good, price. Good, and good point. And I, 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 uh, you know, single guy, I think I had like a one a little hole in the wall, one bedroom for like $1,100. Yeah. Um, um, you know, affordable, close to the aquarium. When I moved uh, back to LA, I lived off of, I think it was third and Alamitos or something like that. Uh, yeah. uh, just, yeah, maybe about a thousand or 1200 bucks for just a, a little one bedroom. That was it. Yeah. I even thought about, I, I thought about subleasing the storage space under the, the stairs that went to the second floor. Cause okay. I had this huge like storage closet that I know could fit a twin bed in there. I thought about it. I thought about it. I, I need to make some money. Come on. That's great. That's great. Well, have you seen those new like compartments where you go in and you rent a bed and they're lined like you 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 pay? It's basically we like got something from the Japanese, dollars. right? I mean, that's that. Yeah. I think the Japanese yeah. have done that for decades now. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. It's like fifty dollars for a good nap. Um, how did you not let the restaurant industry break you? Well, it broke me multiple times over, but the you know the uh, scar tissue heals over. Um, it, 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 it's just, it's such a fascinating place. Now it's totally different today than it was 10 years ago. How, how so? And, um, well, I mean, it's certainly more woke. Uh, it's, it's less toxic. The, there wasn't the, the, I think the era of I can work 18 hour days, five months in a row is over. Like it was all, it was very competitive male and female. Right. And it was like, oh yeah, you were you know, you work through your break and like the harder you work and the more you bury your body. And then like late nights of drinking that, that is over, right? Like it's much cooler in the restaurant industry now to be sober, right. Mm -hmm. Versus the Anthony Bourdain era when, it, when that wasn't necessarily the case. Now, don't get me wrong. You still have, there's still a plethora of places where the you, it's full of that toxic culture, but uh, it's definitely changed because look at what food network did to the restaurant industry. Right. It glamorized it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and just the, um, the idea that you are a team, you know, when, when it comes right down to it, you are a team trying to assemble a product in the hopes that you get more people to come back to buy that product. And if you're just constantly at each other's throats, you're not bringing out the best in other people. Yep. Yep. Yeah. There's huge, huge team effect. And that's, and that's all, that's interesting. That interesting. You bring that up because, you know, I, I, I've, been always saying that we pay our dishwashers more than our line cooks because if a line cook calls out the team's going to pick up the slack the dishwasher calls out nobody's filling that position nobody like nobody's going to step in and be like i'll be the dishwasher and there's one dishwasher right, right. 
So you pay accordingly, you pay more that, you know, you don't have that team effect in the dish pit, pearl diving, suds buster, whatever you want to call it. Um, so, uh, you know, that's an interesting point you bring up. The uh, progression then from working at a nonprofit, not being able to really pay your rent or pay your bills or anything like that back in 08, 09, what was the progression to then opening Slapfish? How many uh, years did well, that take and what was the, the, the mindset? Two years into the nonprofit, I knew that, you know, our funding was going to ultimately run out. I had to start thinking about the next move and pivoting. But all while I was working within that seafood space, which was working with hundreds of chefs all throughout Southern California, trying to engage them to serve more sustainable seafood, working deeply within the supply chain, aquaculture, wild fisheries, working with governmental agencies, non-governmental organizations, just really, really becoming um, an expert in the seafood world, I realized that the reason people don't eat as much seafood as, as they should, because interestingly, our per capita consumption of seafood is like 16 pounds of per person compared to like 90 pounds of beef, 90 pounds of chicken, right? Yeah. We all know intellectually that seafood is the highest quality protein. If you, you gave everybody a survey and said, what's the best to eat? Everyone would be like salmon, Mediterranean diet, but yet we don't, our, our behavior doesn't reflect that. It's because there was an, a lack of accessibility in the market. On the one end of the spectrum, you have a high price white tablecloth seafood. On the other end of the spectrum, you got greasy fried seafood. There was nothing in that sweet spot. So I realized that was the eureka moment. I said, well, there's, there's a demand here. Um, and I've seen it. And I've done two years of deep, immersive research. So why not create a brand where we can capitalize on the quality of fine dining, but the cost and convenience of faster food? Well, how would I get the cost and meanings of faster food, but no better way than to leverage the relationships I created through this program with right. fishermen and aquaculture operations to basically vertically integrate and try and cut out the middleman so I can serve fresh Maine lobster at the, a good price or X, Y, or Z species at a really good price. Um, not from a business standpoint in terms of margins and costs and things like that, but from a, a mental and just kind of spiritual standpoint, connected with the earth, as I know you and your family are, uh, how do you strike that balance between, okay, I want to make sure that, uh, that, that our oceans stay, uh, you know, stocked for lack of a better word, uh, how do you strike that balance between sustainability and like, okay, I'm, I'm going to start a restaurant and it's going to end up becoming a, a bit of a chain here in Southern California. How do you strike that balance? Well, number one, it's a, it's a, it's a good balance between aquaculture, which is farm fish and wild fish, right? So you need the farm fish in order to relieve the pressure off the wild stocks, but also only buying from wild stocks that are well-managed. The ocean is incredibly resilient and actually, you know, culling the herd, if you will, creates a stronger herd. So when you're properly regulating how much fish you are taking through a, uh, through a, a good quota system, and we have a phenomenal framework here in the United States, um, then you can sustainably support fishing communities all while making sure that the stocks are near or at a maximum sustainable yield what and that was the basis and the foundation of our purchasing policy is to do exactly that so um you're actually helping the ocean because fishermen are the are stewards of the ocean um they're the people that are out there day in and day out that see it that that that, that take care of it use the lobster fishery for example there's really not much regulation from the national Marine fishery service when it comes to regulating how much you can catch because the lobster fishermen themselves generations of lobster fishermen they regulate themselves if a fish is, if it's too small, they throw it back. If it's, um, you know, 
a particular species, they notch the tail to make sure. And then if you get that lobster and you see the tail's been notched, another fisherman basically is telling you don't take this lobster. There's all this unwritten law of the ocean. Well, that's an example of fishermen maintaining this iconic stock, right? Main lobster. Um, and there's stories like that across various fish fisheries. So that's kind of the idea behind having a seafood business while also being sustainable. What's something that you learned in culinary school that you really don't use on a regular basis, especially as a business owner and the opposite? What's something you wish you learned in culinary school or in food marketing for your degree or all these other classrooms where you're like, ah, shit, all this education and still nobody told me this. Well, you spend an entire year basically working on mother sauces and stocks, right? Stocks and sauces. So, um, that I couldn't tell you the last time I made it, made a, <laughs> um, but the great foundation, great fundamentals. You learn a lot within the process of making those stocks that are with little tips and tricks that obviously it's wax on wax off, right? Right. Who cared about the waxing. It was, there was some bigger, there was a bigger lesson there. Um, and then something I wish that I did learn more of was the human element, right? Right. Because right now people tell me what's the biggest challenge running restaurants. It's not the food. It's not the trends. It's not the ingredients. It's the people element. Um, and it's getting tougher and tougher, especially in places like California. Um, we're, you know, I'm, I'm a behavioral psychologist at this point. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, why, why I would imagine, you know, it's, it's, you say it's getting tougher, but then it's on the other side, a little bit, it's a, it's a friendlier kitchen or it's a nicer kitchen. So how is it that it, that job, that part of the job is getting tougher? Well, it's because the, because of the, um, um, the liability of it's lawyers kill everything. Oh, the, the, the regulations from Sacramento. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. get sued for anything nowadays, which is why I pushed big time. And I put a piece out in Cal matters that, um, you know, restaurateurs really need uh, immunity from COVID related lawsuits um, because that's already starting to become an industry. Now these drive by lawsuits um, the same way they were with the slip and fall lawsuits originally when they had the, um, ADA accessibility the ADA on the stuff, right? Right. Yeah. What What is the the staff or something? What is that behind you on the wall? This right here. Yeah. So this is uh, this is from Save the Brave, which is an organization. Oh, oh, it's an OR. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is Save the Brave, which is an organization run by actually uh, Nick Velez out of Bastards Canteen up in Downey. Um, and uh, what they do is they um, basically raise money for veterans suffering from PTSD and all that money goes into their save the brave offshore where they take them out on fishing trips to kind of just unwind. And we go back to the humility of it where you're a business owner, you're a successful business. How many restaurants now you've got three, three or four brands. And then how many actual locations? Um, and a lot of them are franchise. We don't own them all, but over 30. Wow. Wow. So is, uh, how is it that you're not saying, okay, I'm just going to, I'm just going to sit back and let this, you know, let the money roll in, let the accolades roll in. How do you say, okay, I'm, I'm also going to do this. Yes. I'm going to be an activist. I'm going to be a spokesperson. I'm going to be an advocate. Those are the fun things. Um, and, uh, also the dangerous things, but I, uh, well, and also people think there's a lot of money in this. There's not, uh, you know, <laughs> it's still the um, restaurant business, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's, what's a real interesting conversation is, is look, you know, to bring up a, a topic that's I went on the other day and I, I, I said, uh, I was on like, I don't even remember what I was on Fox business or Fox. And I said, yeah, we're having trouble finding employees 
Um, and right now we're offering our, our, we've upped our cooks and dishwashers 20 to $25 an hour. And I just can't find employees. When I talk to people, they tell me there's multiple reasons. Number one, some of them are making enough on unemployment and they're kind of wait this, see this thing through, which right. I'm not calling that laziness, right? Um, some of them just don't want to get hired only to get fired again. Um, and, and then a lot of people, it's because of the childcare. They can't put their kids in school and then they can't afford childcare. So it's like, okay, well, I won't work. And then some of them are, are genuinely, you know, they're like, I, I, whatever, I won't get into all the reasons. But my point of bringing that up is, is that I got totally taken out on, on Twitter, like hundreds, thousands of people calling me out, you greedy POS, like death threats, you name it. I'll send it. I'll send some of this stuff to you. Like socialist communist Twitter wants me done. Blue checks from LA times, New York times. This guy's a liar. Well, cause what people did was they went back into indeed and they saw that we were offering 16 to 20, but in my interview, I said 20 to 25 and they're like, he's a liar. But it turned into, I bring it up because it turned into you rich, greedy millionaire business owner. And I'm like, what we, that is like, <laughs> we pay 60, to 75% above minimum wage. I mean, I personally pay a lot of our workers rents. Like my wife and I have been taking a salary for a significant amount of time. We do side caterings to bring revenue in. But the idea people think restaurant owner is a filthy rich tycoon. Um, and uh, all you have to do is pay a living wage. So I, so I started to engage in the conversation. I said, well, I'm happy to do so. What is it? They're like 35, 40 bucks an hour. You need to start your workers at. I'm like, if I do that, our prices are going to be through the roof. And they're like, well, people will pay. I'm like, I'm talking $40 for a cheeseburger. And they're like, you greedy mother, blah, blah, blah. That <laughs> like, well, wait a minute. No, that's, that's, that's the part of the, the business owner side of things. I've, I've, I've got to be able to pay rent. I've got to do all these yeah. things. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a, it's a crazy world. And it almost seems like through the pandemic, business owners have become the villains. Like we, we were bad people. Um, but yet Amazon is paying $14 an hour to start. They pay a combined one to 2% in, in, in corporate income taxes when small businesses pay roughly 23 to 24%. But I'm the bad guy. Uh, when do you decide to engage with the trolls and the comments and all these others, because I'd ask a lot of my guests, you know, do you live in the comments? When do you decide to either dive in or get out? My wife had to remove my phone from me this weekend. I, I was, it was so bad because you feel like your words are getting skewed. Um, but then you have to remind yourself, most people don't live on Twitter. They don't know it. They don't see it. And it doesn't matter. A lot of people were jumping in and saying the guy's paying 16 to 20 plus bonuses plus tips. It, it, it's about $30 an hour is what our team members end up making. Um, but I, I, what I do is the only reason I engage is I try and find, okay, what's, what can I learn from this? Right? Like there's obviously a message and a lesson in all of this. Um, and I sat down with them after this, it woke me up and I, I sat down with all my team members and I was like, guys, what's the, what is your, give me your feedback. Like, are we not paying enough? Like, what do we need to do here? And of course, everyone's always gonna be like, well, I want more money. But interestingly, a lot of our team members are, are, are they're like, no, I couldn't get a job anyplace else. And I kind of said, I said, here's our numbers. Here's our profit and loss statement. What can I do? What are some of the soft benefits I can offer? We already, anyone can eat for free. I've never charged any employee for food. You come in, you have five meals if you want. Lobster, I don't care, right? It's a soft benefit. Um, 
you know, and some of it was the health insurance talk. So we're looking into new health insurance programs. So I try and find the gems in there to at least get some sort of a common theme that I can then better myself on. But man, <laughs> I'm a bad person. Yes, you are. Damn it. Damn it. Uh, what is the percentage of your day that you are actually able to cook, whether it's at home or at work? I cook more at home now, um, but, uh, you know, about an hour or two a day. But on weekends, I work seven days a week. Um, it's just the way it is. Uh, and on weekends, I do work online in the restaurants. On, on, on the line? Oh, yeah. I'll work a shift online. I'll fry guy, grill guy, pantry, you name it. What does that do to you and for you? Well, a couple things. It makes me realize ways in which I can make things more efficient operationally for the team, for service throughput, all of those kind of key metrics. But then also working side by side with the team members, they see that I'm scrubbing the I'm scrubbing the fryer at the end of the night too. Like I'm not create I'm not looking down on them. Um, that in order to be successful, you need to get in and work alongside everybody and 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 um, you know shadow shadow them and lead by example. So you're what you're about ten years into Slapfish, give or take. Yeah, it'll be. Uh, I started the food truck exactly ten years ago. So what? would you want 10 years ago chef to tell you now or vice versa? Like what would you tell 10 years ago, Andrew about what's going to happen or what he should do or what he shouldn't do? Trust yourself, trust your gut. Don't, and don't trust other people. I've been, I've been duped, manipulated and screwed so many times over um, along the way, just trying to follow the money right? Thinking that, that it was like the dollar, but in the long run, like a quick dollar is always going to end up with a longer debt associated with it. So it needs to be organic, um, grow organically, grow naturally. You know, I grew this thinking, okay, we're going to raise money and then we're going to get a venture capital and we're going to blow this thing up to like a hundred locations. Um, and I think a lot of people now are obsessed with that, like flash in the pan story, right? Everybody thinks they've got the next idea and they can jot it down on the back of a napkin and then they can be Elon or you know, they're going to be, you know, face, have the next Facebook, but that's just not the way life works. If there was no social media, because I, th I feel like, and correct me if I'm wrong, social media has been in instrumental in uh, your restaurant's growth and the word of mouth, obviously with the food trucks back in the day, I think what you probably put out alerts on Twitter, like, Hey, we're going to be here today. Exactly. What, what would, your business look like without social media? Um, yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Uh, I think our advertising line item would be a lot higher, <laughs> <laughs> but, but I'll tell you what, so, you know, it, it, it's, it's this integrated ecosystem, right? So you look at it as like, it's kind of a social media is like a beacon. It's just a way in which you draw people back to kind of one central area, but then you still have to deliver, um, our social media behavior, which is very organic and authentic, and it's just my wife and I still running it. Like we don't have agencies that do any of this. We um, is that that same behavior translates and is reflected in the way in which we act in the restaurants, talking to every guest, resolving things properly, like just customer, 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 customer. As much as that's a cliche, like, yeah. and the customer is always right. We know they're not, but you. You still have to treat them that way. 
do you still get the anxiety that you've been chasing, you know, that kitchen anxiety, that restaurant anxiety, do you still get that thrive off of it? Or do you find yourself because of the mental health culture and, uh, you know, the, the advocacy in recent years, do you find yourself unplugging more? No, no. Unfortunately, I think it's actually worse because the more, the more projects I take on and the more there is to this, the more people that rely on me, the more anxious I get about it. And the more I feel like it could be taken away at any minute. Uh, and, and let's say 20 projects have uh, been pitched to you over the last year. I mean, just throwing that out there, how many do you have to say no to just because there's, there's just no time. There's just not enough of you to go around. Uh, I probably should say no more. I think that's something I would tell myself 10 years from now is say no. It's good to say no. Yeah, it's difficult. I, t I tell my students, I used to tell my students, just say yes to any opportunity that that, uh, that you're presented because you never know if that's going to be the last opportunity that you're presented. And it's shifted now to where I say, no, do what feels right to you. Do what you feel like is best for you. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's such a good point. It's like, you know, you go to these networking things and you try and meet everybody and create this massive wide network. And I feel like that strategy is 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 not the way that it was, right? Like now it's more about just kind of hyper-focused, targeted. Well, uh, Chef, we've been trying to do this for a few years. I know some things have gotten in the way here and there. You've always been a big supporter of mine and I, I love uh, being able to talk with you over the years. And of course, today, thank you, man. I appreciate it. No, thank you. It has been great. And I, I just remember all the times I would drive around listening to you sit in for Tim Conway and <laughs> KFI was great. I appreciate that, man. Thank you. Thanks, Chef. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Oh, I forgot to get a like a yes, Chef. Yes, Chef. We Something Chef. Like we Chef. We Chef. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. We'll talk soon. Yeah, I hope to I hope to, to cook for you down here soon. Absolutely. I haven't been to Orange County in a long, long time with my wife's illness last year and, of course, the pandemic and uh, just being so busy up here in L.A. But I've got to get to O.C. soon. And when I do, I will make sure to give you a heads up because I want to hang out. Thank you so much. You can watch this episode on YouTube and DB&A TV. Follow the Aaron Bender podcast on your favorite platforms and link to it at AaronBender.com. That's also where you can find all my social media. If you have guest ideas or comments, email me, AaronBenderMedia at gmail.com. Be well, and thanks for listening.